0: Before we get started, let's do this. Let's go ahead and open up to 2 Peter chapter 1. And as you do that, as Chelsea said, my name is Corey Perkins. I have the privilege of being the minister to young adults and young families on the Longview campus. I shepherd people from 18 to early 40s. So if you're in your early 40s, you're welcome. I just lumped you in with young adults. Hopefully that made your day. Um, I'm so thankful to be a part of this church family. And we're one family In Christ, So we're going to be in 2 Peter. Let me set up the context of this book. It's a really small book of the Bible in the New Testament. But there's a lot in it. There's a lot of truth in this small book. Peter, the disciple of Christ, wrote this book. Peter was the guy that a lot of times would say things without thinking about them. He would just speak first and then think later. Very ambitious, very courageous guy. And as he's writing this book, this epistle to the early church... He's kind of in the later stages of his life. He is imprisoned. He's, he's locked up for sharing the gospel and being a preacher of the gospel. And he knows he is about to lose his life. He knows he's about to die. So this is his last sermon, his last uh, word of encouragement to the church. Because his life is about to be taken from him. And he hears about the, some issues going on in the early church. Three issues that he wants to address through this letter. One of those is, at this time the early church was being persecuted heavily for being Christians. Uh, That area was being ruled by the Emperor Nero. Nero was the most aggressive, evil, inhumane ruler of that time. He took enjoyment and fulfillment in crucifying and killing Christians in public. That was one of the things he liked to do. So persecution is heavy on the church, and it's actually causing the church to spread all over that area. Also, secondly, there are false teachers that have come into the early church and they're teaching a false gospel. They're watering down the gospel. Think about when you go get your favorite drink, Dr. Pepper, sweet tea, and you get it from the drive-thru and it's like super watered down. You're like, this is not what I ordered. This is not flavorful. This is not what I wanted. They are changing the message and the makeup of the gospel because what these teachers are teaching, Jesus is great, but you need Jesus plus works. You need Jesus plus the law. You need Jesus plus good behavior. And we know as Christians, we know the Bible says Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's only Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. But they're changing the message of the gospel. And they're also saying, hey, God gives us grace. Jesus is not going to come back, right? So you can live like you want to live. They lived in a very corrupt, sinful, sexual, perverted culture. And they're coming in and teaching these Christians, hey, it's okay to do whatever you want to. Fulfill the desires of your flesh because God's grace is abundant. And we know that that turns grace into cheap grace. And Jesus died on the cross for us, and that was not cheap grace. It cost him everything. So false teachers are in the midst of the church. And then lastly, one of the issues that they had, the early believers, the gospel is spreading all over, and Gentiles who were non-Jews, are becoming saved. They're accepting the gospel and giving their life to Jesus. So within the church body, you have Jews and you have Gentiles. You have different traditions, different cultures, different belief systems, and they're coming together in one church, and there's some tension in the church that's causing some disunity. So Peter, realizing this is his last word to the church, writes a letter of instruction and encouragement, and he gives the church some guardrails. Guardrails keep you safe When you're on the road, and he points out some red flags that the early Christians need to look to to really follow Jesus Christ. So let's look in verse one together. Verse one of chapter one, he says this Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm gonna read that again Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. It would be really easy to look over that phrase and just kind of gloss over it and think about, hey, Peter's just kind of introducing himself. But there's a lot more than that. That word servant is really, in the NIV, is a really, it's a bad translation. That word servant is, comes from the Greek word doulos, which you see Paul use quite a bit. It means to be a slave, to be a bondservant, someone that owed, owed someone else money that was indebted to that person for life. And what he's saying right off the bat He's saying to the church, here, before you read anything else in my letter, I want you to hear my heart. Everything I'm about to write stems from my identity in Christ. I'm a bond servant to Jesus. I own nothing. I have no possessions. I have no right. I have no say. I'm giving my life to the authority of Jesus Christ. I'm submitting as a man to the gospel. He says that right off the bat. Here's who I am. I want you to hear my heart because everything I'm about to write you stems from my identity. Then he goes on to say, and apostle of Jesus Christ. He's a servant for life, and he's an apostle. That word servant, again, was the lowest of the low. In that culture, it was a very demeaning phrase. It meant you were lower than the animals. So in culture, in the world, it was very demeaning, depressing to have that. But in God's kingdom, listen, in God's kingdom, a bondservant to Jesus is the highest calling you can have. Would you agree? To be a servant to Jesus is the highest calling. And he said, you know what, my whole perspective has changed. I'm a servant to God and an apostle. An apostle was a person that was sent out in the name of Jesus. As you guys leave today and you go back to life, your job, community, marriage, family, school, you're not just leaving. You're not just being dismissed. You're being sent out for the gospel. Does that make sense? It's not, I'm a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Your identity, listen, your identity as a Christian is directly tied to the calling God's given you. As a Christian, if you've given your life to Christ in faith, your identity, who you are, your purpose, your value, your mission is directly tied to the calling Jesus has put on your life, which is totally opposite of what the world says your identity is. The world you live in today, the culture says, your identity as a person is found from external things. Your job, how much money you make, how you, your giftings, your personalities, who you're dating, who you're married to. As a Christian, it's an internal calling that Jesus puts on your life when you came to know him as Lord and Savior. Think about Peter, the experience he had with Jesus when he met Jesus on the beach. And Jesus called him out and said, hey, you know what? Follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. He had an experience, a radical experience with Jesus that changed his life, changed his job, and even changed his name. His name wasn't Peter. It was Simon. And when Jesus called him out and gave him a new calling, he changed his name. The word Peter... Means rock, right? Peter was the original rock before the rock. He called him the rock because he said, you know what, I'm gonna build my church with guys like you. He gave him a calling and it changed his identity. Burn this in your brain, this thought. Identity determines activity. How you see yourself determines how you make choices. How you see yourself determines your attitude. How you see yourself determines how you respond in tough situations. Do you see yourself as a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus? The calling dictates everything you do. What's our calling? I want to highlight two passages. One is the great commandment. So how do we know our calling as Christians? How do we filter identity through God's word? One calling is a great commandment. Remember, the teachers of the law were trying to stump Jesus. What's the greatest commandment? Do you really know the law? Jesus said this, you need to love your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's your calling. That's my calling. We filter everything we do through that. Also, the Great Commission, Matthew 28. This is the last thing that Jesus said to the disciples before he ascended to heaven you would assume it was very important. The last thing I'm about to say to you before, you're gonna take over the reins of the ministry, the Great Commission, right? Go into all nations and make disciples. That's your calling, that's my calling. That's where we find our identity. Your identity's tied to the calling God's put on your life. Some amazing things about identity as a Christian. When you find your identity in Christ, it takes so much pressure off you. Because you don't have to worry about pleasing this world with abilities and status and money. You don't have to worry about being someone you're not. We've all done that. That's exhausting to be someone I'm not called to be. That's exhausting to please people around me. When you follow the identity God's given you as an apostle and a bondservant, it takes so much pressure off you because you know what? God's already given me the identity I need. And I'm going to follow him and it gives you clarity. It gives you clarity on where you need to go with your life. So question for you before we move on to the next passage. Honestly, right now in this season of your life, where are you finding your value? Have you strayed away from the identity God's given you? Are you exhausted? Are you empty? Where are you finding your identity right now? Peter said, I'm a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to say... That same verse, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, he's making it very clear that he believes Jesus is God. There was some confusion. A lot of people didn't believe Jesus was really God. He was just this great guy. He said, nope, Jesus is God and he's Savior. We have received a faith as precious as ours. He's talking to the church. He's saying ours. Jews, Gentiles, this is our faith. You're to come together as one. The foot at the, the foot, the level of the cross, the footing at the cross, the ground at the cross is level for all people. The same Jesus that died for the Jews, he's saying, died for the Gentiles. The same blood that was shed for the Jews was shed for the Gentiles. Jesus loves everyone. This is our faith. He's saying, listen, the body of Christ is beautiful. I love the fact that. The church is very diverse. We've got different personalities, different giftings. We have different backgrounds. But when we come together, right, we come together as family, we're one. We serve one Savior, one calling, one mission, one gospel. The diversity in the church is a beautiful thing because it highlights the power of God. He's saying, hey, listen, all these disputes and distractions and disagreements that you have in the church, it's okay. But you got to work through it because you love one another. This is our faith. There is no favoritism within the body of Christ. Maybe you've been here 20 years, and that, I applaud you for your faithfulness. Maybe you've been here two months. There's no favoritism. God sees you the same. The foot at the cross is level. God loves his church, and you can see, you can hear Peter's love for the church. I want to read this quote from Spurgeon. Great theologian Spurgeon, great pastor, he says this about the church. The church is not an institution for perfect people. Amen, because I'm not perfect. It is a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, a nursery for God's children to be nurtured, to grow strong. It is a fold for Christ's sheep, the home for Christ's family. The church is the dearest place on earth. Amen? I love being around my church family. I'm energized on mission trips and at camps and on Sundays because we're doing life together. We're sharpening one another, as Proverbs says. We're encouraging one another when we're going through hard times. Ecclesiastes says, when one of your brothers falls up, pick him up. Falls down, picks him up. That's hard to fall up. You do that, holler at me. We have people in our life that encourage us, build us up, pray for us. It's a beautiful thing. We have a, we have a young adult kind of worship gathering on the Longview campus And we have a worship team, and I'll preach, and they'll break into groups. And we're seeing people from kind of all over the country start to visit from California, Austin, Dallas, Louisiana, Mississippi. Young adults that are moving here, single, that are finding jobs in different areas. And what I'm noticing more than ever is young adults, college students, they're really cautious about the church. They really have their guard up. Maybe it's social media or or media in general that has really talked bad about Christians and how we're hypocrites and how we don't love a lost world so they're coming in with their guards up and really cautious about being a part of the church you can just see it when they walk in and there's some intimidation when you walk into a new place as well but one thing I like to say and let people know about who we are I say this probably once a month from the stage I like to say this I like to say hey listen here at Moberly Baptist Church we're a collection of messy broken imperfect people that make mistakes so if you're one of those people, you're going to fit right in. But i follow it up by saying this. We don't boast in that. We don't boast in our sin or our mistakes. We don't boast in that. We boast in the fact that God, with his grace and his love, is molding us, in spite of who we are, to be more like Jesus. So you're going to fit right into this place. And that's the beauty of the church. We're a collection of broken, messy, sinful people saved by grace. So there's no favoritism within the body of Christ Listen, Marshall Campus, this area needs you to love one another and to seek unity out. John said it this way, speaking about the church. He said, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciple. This area needs this church, this body of believers, to love one another and to put disunity aside, to not let disunity Overcome the message of the gospel. Peter's saying the church is beautiful, it's precious. That word church comes from a Greek word, ekklesia. Ekklesia was a term in those days when towns and cities would have meetings to make big decisions on politics, schedule, infrastructure. They would call an ekklesia a gathering. So it meant to gather the called out ones. They would call you out from your family, your job. And call you out of your regular schedule to come to meet together as an assembly to make a big decision. They would call you out. As church, as Christians, we're the called out ones. We're called out of the culture. We're called into community with one another. And we're called out to love one another so we can share the gospel with a lost world. So he says the church is beautiful. Then he goes on to say this. Read with me in verse 3. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. I'm going to read that again. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Maybe you can agree with this statement I'm about to say. I believe we live in a world that's not full of grace and peace right now. Grace and peace are hard to find in our world. Very rare. We have a lot of anxiety, anxiety, A lot of confusion, um, a lot of distractions, a lot of unforgiveness, not a lot of grace and peace. What Peter is saying to these people who are living in a very corrupt world, a very uh, world filled with persecution and pressure and distractions, he's saying, you know what? Grace and peace comes only through your knowledge of Jesus. And that word knowledge means to have an authentic, intimate knowledge of Jesus. You want grace and peace? Only through Jesus. What is grace and peace? Grace is the fact that God gives us unmerited favor through forgiveness and love. God shows me grace and you grace through unmerited favor that He has for us. Unmerited means you can't earn it. You can't earn God's grace. You can't work for it. You can't be smart enough to gain it. God gives it to us because He loves us. And what is peace? Peace is from God, and we have peace in all circumstances. Because God has given us grace. So listen, peace, as a Christian, is directly tied to grace. You have peace in this world because you know God has given you grace. Love, forgiveness, purpose. When you lose a loved one that's a Christian, you have peace. Peace doesn't mean you're happy about it. Peace doesn't mean it's a good situation for you. Like It's hard. But in the middle of losing that person that's a believer... You have peace because God has shown their grace, His grace to them through salvation. If you're going through a hard time at your job, in your marriage, you can still have peace because it's tied to grace. What Peter's saying here, to know peace and grace, you've got to have an intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ. You've got to have a relationship with Him. So challenge for you and me, what's our response as Christians? What's our response to the fact that God gives us grace and peace? Do we keep it to ourselves? Our response should be, we extend that grace to other people in our life. You don't have to raise your hand. But do you have people in your life that you find it hard to show grace and peace to? I'm going to assume yes. Yeah. We have people that we come across that we don't want to forgive, that we don't want to show grace to because they've hurt us. We have no right as Christians, because we know Jesus, to let the grace and peace of Jesus stop with us or to extend that forward to other people that need it. That's how you live out the gospel. You live out the gospel by showing the grace and peace and love of Jesus Christ in your daily life. With people that are hurtful to you. Everybody in your life, you're not going to like. You're just not. But we're called to love them. We've got to pay it forward. I like to frequent Chick-fil-A quite a bit. Anybody like Chick-fil-A? You know what would be crazy if Chick-fil-A could like send me a statement of all the money I've ever spent at Chick-fil-A, that'd be very depressing. Like I could send a a child to college, we were talking about college expenses earlier, and uh, I could probably send one of my kids to college with what I've spent over a lifetime. I don't want to know what that is, but I love Chick-fil-A, and if you don't, I am worried about you. But I was in the drive-thru line, and I pulled up to, to pay my tab, and I have a large family, so we had a lot of food that day, and Chick fil A is not cheap. They're not giving that stuff away. And it was like 43 bucks. And the lady said, Hey, just want to let you know the person in front of you paid your tab. I was like, Man. And at that point, I could have been a horrible person and just taken the food and have driven away. I right? could have just left. That would have been a really bad testimony for that employee and really bad testimony to my Lord Jesus Christ. So I said, you know what, we need to pay this forward. I'm going to pay for the person behind me. And she says, hey, you kind of got off lucky. They just got a sweet tea and a shake. It was like $7. I'm like, I must be living right. (laughs) But we as Christians, listen, we should pay it forward. When, When God has blessed us, we should be a blessing to other people. We should pass that grace and peace on to people around us. Um, recently we've had to send my wife's car to the, the shop a lot. It's been very expensive. Uh, one of the guys from our church owns a mechanic shop. And so I sent it in to get the brakes fixed. Brakes are essential when your wife's driving your kids around. Just know that, husbands. And he called me. I was like, hey, it's going to cost this much. And my jaw, like, literally hit the floor. I had to pick my jaw up. I was like, oh, man. And I said something somewhat sarcastic. I'm sure no one in this room has ever done that. It wasn't like, it was borderline rude. And I hung the phone up. And right when I hung the phone up, the Lord just convicted me, convicted my heart. I was like, you really shouldn't have said that. That could be taken the wrong way to your fellow brother, your fellow church member, your friend. And for like two days, I was just convicted about what I said. Um, and I saw this friend at Easter. He was walking into the church, and I was out greeting. I said, hey, man, I just, I've got to apologize to you for what I said. What I said was not uplifting, it was not encouraging, and in that moment, listen, he extended grace and peace to me. He, in fact, said, I didn't think you would even have to forgive, ask for forgiveness, but I'm glad you did, we're good, I love you, brother. In that moment, he extended the gospel to me through the grace and peace of Jesus. Who in your life do you need to extend grace and peace to currently? He goes on to say this, look in verse 3. His divine nature has given us everything we need for a godly life. I'm going to read that again. That should just get you excited. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and grace. Listen, many times, just to be honest with you, I feel very inadequate and insecure about being a Christian, specifically a minister. Like, I can't be a leader in the church. I can't live this Christian life. We live in a corrupt world, distractions. How can I be effective? And listen, Peter's saying, listen, you have everything you need to live a godly life through your knowledge of him who called you by his own glory. And goodness, someone needs to hear this today. God has fully equipped you as a believer to live in victory. You have no excuse. I have no excuse. Through salvation, God has given you and me everything we need to live a godly life. Not by our own merits, our own power. He goes on to say, through your knowledge of him. We have no excuse to live in weakness or apathy or to be unproductive as Christians. God's given us everything we need to live a victorious life in this corrupt world that we live in. To overcome temptation and addiction and sin. All of that, he's given it to us. Think about this. God gave us his only son to make our relationship with him right, to bring unity, to justify us. That word justification means he has justified us in God's eyes, made us right. He gave us his only son, his prized possession. Would he hold anything else back from us as believers that would help us live a godly life? It doesn't make sense. He gave us everything in his son, and we can live a godly life, And overcome the corruption of this world. Look at verse 4. Through these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in this world caused by evil desires. We can live in victory through Jesus. Think about David and Goliath. David was fully equipped when he went to fight Goliath, Peter was fully equipped. When he walked on water, Moses was fully equipped to lead God's people out of Egypt. You're fully equipped to live a powerful, victorious life every day. He's given you everything you need through your knowledge of him. God's grace is sufficient. These false teachers were coming into the church saying, you know what? You can't overcome this corruption. Just give in to the sin. It's okay. Live like you want to live. There's no way to overcome it. God's grace is bigger. Do whatever you want to do. Please the flesh. It's okay. And Peter's saying, no, it's not okay. God has called you to live differently, and he's given you the power to do it. He goes on to say in verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith. Being a Christian is hard. It's hard. It's hard work. So he's saying, hey, listen, you've got to exercise your faith. You've got to add to your faith. What did James say about faith and works? Faith without works is dead. Peter's saying, hey, you got to work out your faith here. you got to add things to your faith. Faith is the beginning point. right?" Romans 10 says, if you believe in your heart, You confess with your mouth you will be saved. Having faith in Jesus, that's the beginning. That's just the starting point. Some of us as Christians, we don't mature because we're like, I've already said that prayer. I've already given my life to Christ. But we don't add anything to our faith and there's no spiritual maturity. Peter's saying, no, listen, you've got to add to your faith. Being a Christian is not a sprint. It's a marathon. It takes time. You've got to add to your faith. You've got to exercise your faith. If you don't use your faith, you lose it. You can lose your maturity. When I first started driving, I got a, got a Ford Ranger. My mom surprised me with a Ford Ranger. It was a standard. It took a while to learn how to drive, but one of the things I loved to do was to drive down the highway and just throw that st- uh, Ford Ranger into neutral and just kind of coast, just to see how far I could go. I don't know why. It's kind of weird. I get it, but I just enjoyed doing that. And I thought about this. Spiritual terms, listen, there is no Neutral. You can't just throw your faith in the neutral and coast like I did with that truck. No matter how how old you are, what phase of life you are, you can't just say, you know what, God, for this season, I'm going to throw my life into neutral and just see what happens. There is no neutral in terms of being a Christian. It's a daily battle. You can't be like, hey, yesterday I did good. Or last week I went to church camp or on a mission trip, and I had a spiritual high. I'm good for three weeks. You can't do that. Jesus said you've got to take up your cross daily. It's a daily battle. It's a daily relationship. There is no neutral in terms of being a Christian. And Peter says you've got to add to your faith. You've got to exercise your faith. He says this, add to your faith goodness. Let's talk about these seven characteristics. This is called the ladder of faith. Goodness. Goodness is moral excellence. As a Christian, you should have a higher standard for the way you live your life. It's called God's God's word. People should look at you by the way you talk, your social media, the way you dress, the way you respond with patience, all of that, and say, you know what? There's something different about that person. They live to a different standard than I do. Moral excellence. It's that same phrase that Paul uses when he's talking to Timothy about when you choose leaders within the church, they need to be above reproach. They need to be blameless. People can't look at you and blame you for something that you didn't do because there's no evidence. Moral excellence. Then he goes on to say knowledge. Knowledge. Knowing God's word and knowing what God's word says about different situations. When you're, not, when you're not literate in God's word and you're faced with the situation, you don't know what God's word says about it, you're in trouble. And a lot of people today, even people that are preachers on social media, twist the word of God to use it for their own advances. Knowledge is to know God's word and what it says about living life as a Christian. And to knowledge, self-control. Self-control means to control your desires, not let your desires control you. We live in a very corrupt, sinful, perverted world right now. So self-control is just that characteristic to say, you know what? I'm going to control my passions and not let them control me. It's, It's an athletic term. That they used in that time for athletes that were preparing for a big competition. And they would not eat fatty or unhealthy foods or drink wine, preparing for that competition so they could have their best performance. Are you self-control? Then he goes on to say, perseverance. That's two words. Perseverance is the word of patience and endurance. Patience to wait on God, to wait on God's will. Anybody ever have a problem waiting on God? I do. Because I'm going to do things my way. So waiting on God and then endurance, continuing to do the right things even when you don't want to. Continuing to follow God's word even when you feel like it's not working or it's, it's not popular or it doesn't lead to any fulfillment. Doing both. And the thing about perseverance, the way you gain that is through pain. It's painful to have perseverance. James talks about this. Consider it pure joy When you face trials of many kinds, because the testing of your faith produces perseverance. That doesn't sound fun. Painful. Pain leads to perseverance. My daughter runs cross country for Hallsville High School. Does anybody else like to run? You like to run. Why? I don't know why people like to run for fun. I'll give me a basketball, baseball, but they run. They run 3.1 miles. That's their, their race. And they're not jogging, they're not walking cross-country. You're running as fast as you can in the heat of August, September, and October for 3.1 miles. I don't know why people like to do that, but she does that. During the week, to train for the race, you run 40 to 45 miles. Doesn't sound fun. I see some people grimacing over here. So to get ready for each race, you run close to 50 miles a week. So to run the 3.1 miles well, you have to run 50 miles you have to deal with pain. Listen, to live this Christian life, there are trials, tribulations, and pain. Jesus went through it. His disciples went through it. People in the Bible went through it. We're gonna go through pain. But it develops perseverance so when we face the next obstacle, we can overcome it. We've already been over this hurdle, and we did well. We we'll let God use us and teach us. Next time we face another hurdle, we realize God's got us through that one. He's gonna get us through this one. Perseverance is patience patience. And endurance. And then he says godliness. Godliness is to have reverence and awe for God. To walk out and look around and say, God, you're amazing. To worship him in reverence and awe. To have that awe for God. Many times as Christians, we lose our awe for who God is. We just lose awe. Ah, He's great. He's good. That's great. I mean, we forget about what he's doing in our life and who he is. To have awe of God. Then he goes on to say this. He says you need to have mutual affection and love. Mutual affection comes from that Greek word phileo, which means brotherly and sisterly love within the church. We should love one another within the church. We should care about one another. But the word love is an agape word, which takes it to a new level. The word love there means to love others like God loved humankind. Sacrificial, took action. Love this in spite of our sin. That's the love we have for our lost world. Mutual affection and then love. Think about this. Are you adding these to your faith? Then he closes with this kind of a warning. Verse 8. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. Ineffective and Unproductive that's really the worst thing that Jesus could say to you and me other than I know you not. Can you imagine being face to face with Jesus and said, hey, I gave you this life and you were ineffective and unproductive. Wouldn't that be heartbreaking? So Peter's saying, if you don't exercise and add to your faith, you're unfruitful, which could be another word for unproductive. God gave you this life and gave you salvation and blessed you so you would be fruitful and take the gospel wherever you go. We should be possessing fruit and living out the fruit of the gospel. Tony Evans, one of my favorite preachers, said this about fruit. He said, there's three qualities about fruit. I want you to think about this. He said, one is fruit is always visible. You see apples on an apple tree. It's visible. The fruit of the Spirit should be visible in your life, right? He said this, the fruit always takes on the characteristic of the tree that it's derived from. It takes on the qualities of the tree. As a believer, as you follow God, you add these to your faith, you take on the characteristics of Jesus Christ. You become more like Jesus. And then three is this, fruit is always for the benefit of someone else. Fruit is always for the benefit of someone else. If you see a fruit eating itself on the tree, if it's eating itself, it's rotting. You ever seen, seen like a rotted apple starts to die? Fruit is for someone else. As you follow God and as you add to your faith, You're to bless the local body that you're a part of. God gifted you to bless this church, but also bless the lost world. It says, don't be ineffective and unproductive. Then he closes with this, and I'll close. It says in verse 8, but whoever does not have them, talking about these qualities, whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sin. Have you forgotten what God's done in your life? Have you forgotten about the love that Jesus showed you and me on the cross? It says we become nearsighted. That term means you can see right here, but you can't see out there. You can see everything in front of you, but you can't see out there. I think many times as Christians we get caught up with distractions. We get caught up with temporary pleasure. We get selfish. And God's saying, hey, listen, you're looking at all this stuff right in front of you, but I want to do something big out there. Change your focus. Look out there. My plan for you, my purpose for you is amazing, but you've got to quit looking right here. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we pray that you would help us to exercise our faith, that we would find our identity in you. God, that we would continue to value and hold on to the gospel. We thank you for the cross. God, I pray that this campus would be known by the way they love one another. God, help us to apply this passage to our life. You're not done with us. Help us to know that and live that daily. God, we love you.